and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Alexa Chu, Clinical Associate Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law, and Kevin Bernardo, Clinical Associate Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law. We will discuss their article, Citation Stickiness, which will be published in the Journal of Appellate Practice and Process. So, uh, Alexa and, and Kevin, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about this paper because it spoke to my own experiences as a clerk, which I'm sure... I share with uh, a lot of other professors and lawyers and maybe students kind of preparing to go that direction as well. It really took me back to being in the judges' chambers and thinking about thinking about the judicial process. Uh, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, I, I wonder if we could start by just kind of taking a look at the title. Right. So what do you mean by citation stickiness? What, what, makes a, what makes a citation sticky in, in your understanding? Well, so the, the way we like to think about it is the attorneys in the briefs that they're submitting to the courts, they're essentially, you know, tossing case citations at the court's direction. And some of those citations stick. And the court also uses those same case citations in its opinions. And we call those sticky citations. So, so that's what we mean when we say citation stickiness. And many of the cases that the parties cite in their briefs, you know, they never show up in the court's opinions. And we call those unsticky citations. <laughs> okay. So you, you also talk about endogenous citations. What do you mean by that? How would you distinguish between like a sticky and an endogenous citation? So an endogenous citation is... Uh, a citation that's in the court's opinion that did not appear in the party's briefs. So it's endogenous, right? It came from the court itself. And so opinions will have sticky citations, the citations that came from the, the parties in their briefs, and then endogenous citations, which are citations that sort of sprung up from the court itself. It, it seems like there's like a kind of small literature about citation stickiness, or maybe sometimes people use other words to describe the phenomenon out there. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the goal of that literature. Like what can citation stickiness and, and studying citation stickiness and endogeneity tell us about the judicial process and judicial decision-making? Decision In other words, why study citation stickiness? Uh, so why study it? There are a few reasons. I will say one reason was that we were just curious. Um, thinking back to your experience as a clerk, uh, I clerked, Kevin also clerked. Um, and my experience as a clerk, looking at briefs and, and writing draft opinions was pretty different from my experience um, teaching legal writing to law students, right? When I teach legal writing, I'm really emphasizing to law students, you need to get the law right. You need to present the law that's relevant you know, to the court. The court needs that information. You're being helpful to the court. The court is relying on it. But then I think back to me as a clerk, and sometimes that was true, but often I would read the briefs and I would start the research over and see if I got what 
the the parties got or or not. Um, and so I I was as I got into teaching more and more, I was thinking about like this seems inconsistent with my experience. And then talking with other folks who clerked, um, other folks had similar experiences. And so kind of one of the one of the points of this was to see if that if that was borne out by actual data, because we both Kevin and I went looking at the literature, which, as you noted, is is quite small. Um, and it just wasn't a question that people were focusing on. Um, there is a lot there are um, many, many citation studies out there, but not very much on what gets transmitted, transmitted from the parties um, to the court. And so. Um, a few things we thought that would be helpful about actually doing this and getting a baseline for, you know, what percentage of the the cases cited in opinions are are cited first by the parties um, was both to uh, help lawyers know kind of what happens with the the cases that they cite in their briefs. Right, we only have uh, kind of big overall numbers and and. There's only so much you can do with that to trace back to a particular brief in a particular case. Um, but it, I think it um, validates some of the feelings that some some lawyers have that the cases that they cite in their in their briefs um, don't show up in the opinions. And then in terms of how it affects the or what it tells us about judicial decision making, um, you know, this judicial decision making itself is is for outsiders, a, a black box. But what we get at the end is the written decision. Um, and so at the very least, we can see, you know, to what degree are the courts doing their own their own independent research as opposed to just relying on what's in the party's briefs. Um, and so now that we kind of have that that baseline and we see, oh, there's a, there's a big difference there, um, I think this helps target some more areas for more particular research that could give us a little bit more um, more information about what you really do with this number or this idea of citation stickiness. Mm. Well, maybe you could talk briefly about the small literature that is out there, because I thought that was really in, an interesting kind of part of, of the paper, especially because it seemed like there was a tendency to sort of focus in that literature on either the Supreme Court or on particular state courts. Um, and, and as you kind of alluded to, to approach the question of citations in a sort of a lot of relatively consistent ways. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of what the existing literature looked like and how it informed your decisions when you put together the study that you ran. Sure. So, you know, first off, there are plenty of very fascinating citation practice studies out there. But, you know, the majority of those studies tend to look at, you know, what courts are citing. So they'll take a particular court, maybe the U.S. Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court, and assess some subset of their opinions to figure out, okay, do they cite to binding case law? or what are the qualities of the secondary sources that they're citing to. What the overwhelming majority of these studies do not do is trace the, the origination of those sources. So is that something that the court came up with itself, or is that a source that uh, the parties had cited in their briefs? Now, we did come across a couple examples of, of previous studies into citation stickiness. The most robust one was actually from back in the 1970s, 
a researcher by the name of Thomas Marveau, looked at a year's worth of opinions from a state Supreme Court. And we don't even know what state Supreme Court it was because uh, he kept that anonymous in publishing his study. But what he found was that for uh, the cases cited by that state Supreme Court, a slim majority of them were what we would call endogenous. So they came from the court themselves. They were not previously cited in the party's briefs. And then he also looked at all the cases that the parties had cited in their briefs, and he found that only 17% of those cases actually would later show up in the resulting opinion. So he observed a pretty large disconnect between the cases that the, the parties were citing and the cases that the court ended up citing. Mm. So can you describe then your study? How did you how did you structure it? Sort of what did you use as your data set? And why did you make those particular choices in putting together the study? Sure. So our data set consists of 325 disputes from the 13 federal courts of appeals. So that came out to 25 uh, disputes from each of the 13 circuits. And what we did was uh, essentially we figured out what our research parameters were, and then we grabbed the first 25 cases from each of the 13 circuits that met those parameters. So some of the parameters that we imposed was, you know, first off, we wanted opinions that were authored. So we got rid of any procurium opinions. We also excluded any unpublished opinions. And the reason that we did that is because, you know, we wanted cases that were going to be the product of, you know, very robust briefing and then also, you know, thoughtful decision-making from chambers. So we wanted to exclude ones that come from, say, the staff attorney's office, which might just be cut and pasted language from, you know, the court's resource of, of cut and paste language. So that's why we excluded those opinions. Uh, we also, we ended up excluding a lot of cases simply because the briefs were not accessible in Westlaw. And Westlaw was, was the database that we used to identify all the cases that had been cited in the briefs and the opinions. So obviously, if all the briefs weren't on Westlaw, it wasn't going to make it into our data set. Uh, beyond that, we also excluded cases if there were like a whole bunch of briefs. So if there were amicus briefs or supplemental briefs, anything out of the, the ordinary opening brief, response brief, reply brief, we excluded those cases. And that was, I think, just logistically necessary in order for us to keep track of all the cases cited by the parties, is really just focus on the mine run of appeals with opening briefs, response briefs, and maybe reply briefs. And then actually another, another limitation that kind of surprised us, we didn't think we would need to do this, was we excluded any cases in which the opinion did not cite to, you know, did not include any case citations. And we actually ran across two of those. They were both authored by Judge Posner, then of the Seventh Circuit. And we figured if we're doing a study, if we're doing a study about where do judicial opinions get their case citations from, we should actually be looking at opinions that contain case citations in them. <laughs> so excluding the outliers, as it were. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense to leave out cases with a lot of briefing too, because it seems like, you know, especially if there's lots of 
amicus briefs, it could suggest that it's a sort of uniquely contentious or political case in which courts might be tempted to look outside the record for additional insights. Exactly. And then also, if there's amicus briefs, that kind of would, you know, corrupt our claims of like, is the court getting the citations from the parties or from itself? And an amicus brief would then bring in, you know, essentially another actor into the equation. Is the is the court getting its citations from the amici? Okay, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about your initial findings from from the study. I mean, just looking at it as a kind of a big picture aggregate data set, what did you end up seeing in terms of both stickiness and indigeneity of of citations? So the the big overall finding for all of the all of the citations or all of the cited cases and all of our three hundred and twenty five disputes um, was that. of the cases cited in the opinions we looked at were sticky, which meant that 51%, just a a smidge over a half, um, came from the court itself. They were endogenous. And uh, we were surprised by that. Um, I think we both thought it would be a little little higher or maybe a lot higher. Um, But I mean, that's the the big takeaway is less, less than half of the cases cited by the courts and those opinions that we looked at came from the party's briefs. Uh, and then we also looked um, at how many of the cases cited in the briefs made it up into the opinions. And uh, over all of those citations, um, I think we had a little over 23,000 case citations in all of the briefs that we looked at. Uh, I think about 16% of those cited cases made it up into the opinions, which again was, I think, a, a little lower than we were expecting Uh and but lines up really, really well with what um, Marvell found in his study, even though that was done with a different set of courts 40 years ago before electronic research. Uh, his numbers were really similar, um, ab- just under 50 percent. And um, I think his his percentage of of cases coming from the, the briefs was uh, like 16 or 17 percent. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that really struck me about about the study is that it's it's just so hard to know in any objective sense whether the perceived stickiness and endogeneity are high or low. And especially this sort of correspondence with the Marvell paper that you note. I mean, it seems like we would expect the stickiness to be potentially lower given how much easier it's gotten for courts to do their own research. So in a sense, it almost seems like it might be surprisingly high, just mm. kind of from a historical perspective. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I, um, I know in some of the, the uh, research literature, the research about research, um, you know, that was one of the, the big theories once we moved to electronic research was that when everybody did their research in the West books, right, in the West digest system and their, their key numbers, um, you know, that was such a limited universe that everybody shared that the the things that people cited would be much more common um, and much people would be more likely to cite the same things. And then once we went to electronic research, you know, you're you're fishing in this huge, huge pool of information. Um, and so the chances that you'd be citing something different from another researcher, another attorney, um, you know, would would go up. Um, 
And so I think that you're right that that is surprising that um, it didn't go it didn't go down over 40 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in your study, you, you coded for some other factors as well. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about what factors those were, why you chose them, and whether you saw any variability on those factors that seemed to potentially supply any kind of explanatory uh, information. Sure. So one one of the first things we looked at was, you know, because we had 25 disputes from each of the circuits, was just comparing the circuits to each other to see whether there were any large outliers um, in terms of stickiness. And while, you know, there were there were some differences among the circuits, there weren't any extremely large outliers. And, you know, part of of what surprised us was that, you know, the circuits, of course, they're each their own solar system of precedent. So their pool of binding authorities is quite different, you know, especially for some of the circuits which are newer, like the 11th circuit or the federal circuit. So, you know, we kind of assumed, especially for those circuits, that perhaps the stickiness rates might be different. Perhaps, you know, everyone was going to be citing to the same authorities, but we really didn't find any any meaningful difference going from one circuit to another. Uh, and then we also looked at different um, characteristics of the cases. So we looked at whether, or you know, the underlying disputes, whether they were criminal or whether they were civil, and also what um, what topics they covered. And uh, we just stuck with what Westlaw said the the topics were, um, rather than trying to to discern that ourselves. Um, and we found basically no difference in the stickiness between um, opinions in civil cases and opinions in criminal cases. Criminal cases were like a little stickier, 51% than civil opinions, which were 48% sticky. But that's, I mean, it's not a meaningful difference. Um, And then looking at the Westlaw topics, um, we just looked at the ones where uh, there were at least 10 um, 10 of the opinions we looked at were, were all in the same um, category. And so there were just a handful of those and the stickiness also didn't, I mean, it varied, but not by a huge amount. So bankruptcy was the least sticky Westlaw topic. 41% of the cases cited in those bankruptcy opinions um, came from the briefs. And then the category of government, which I, I don't think I actually could describe what that contains, but mm-hmm. Westlaw's category of government had um, was 53% sticky. So 53% of the cases cited in those opinions um, came from the parties. And then, you know, there were some numbers in between, but it, it worked out to just really about 50%, which was in line with, um, again, like the civil and criminal cases and our overall, our overall stickiness Mm, mm. Yeah, and you co- you coded for judges, as I recall, as well. Yes, yeah, we we sure did. So uh, it was it was fairly easy to you know research the various characteristics of the judges. So we looked at various metrics, looking at judicial experience, also the political affiliation of the president who had appointed the judges, and you know, time and time again, we we really were not finding any meaningful difference in their stickiness rates, which surprised us. You know, we, we thought that perhaps judges who had 
been on the bench for a long time would either be more sticky or less sticky. We, we thought there was going to be a difference there, but we really didn't observe any noticeable trend when it came to tenure on the bench. And then one that I'll say for myself, I was, I was really surprised there wasn't a stickiness difference for was for judges sitting by designation. So I thought when a judge is sitting by designation, you know, either moving from the district court level to the appellate court level, or simply just sitting on a different circuit, that they're going to be less familiar with the precedence of the circuit. And that's either going to cause them to, you know, rely more heavily on the party's briefs and therefore, you know, have more sticky opinions or rely less heavily on the party's briefs and really dive into the research themselves to try to educate themselves. But again, we really did not observe any meaningful difference in the stickiness rates, even for district court judges sitting by designation versus appellate court judges sitting at their home court, which again, really surprised me. So there was really only one one characteristic we looked at that seemed to make a difference, and that was whether the party, uh, which party won and which party lost. Um, basically, everything else we looked at didn't seem to, to affect stickiness too much one way or the other. And what kind of effect did that have? Um, so if uh, a party won, then um, the, the um, I guess, percentage of sticky citations in the opinions that came from the winner um, was higher, 41%, than the percentage of sticky citations that came from the loser, which was 32%. So that was a 9% difference. Um, but again, not a, like, not a huge difference. Um, meaningful maybe, but not, not, I think, very remarkable. One of our takeaways was that, you know, if you want the court to use your citations in its opinion, you know, you should simply win the case because that was the only, only characteristics that we've really found a meaningful difference on. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, like, after running the study, crunching the numbers, sort of analyzing the data, did you have any kind of preliminary thoughts about sort of why we would see this particular level of stickiness and indigeneity? And in particular, why we would see this sort of interesting um, kind of stability in both factors over over time? So we we had many thoughts about this, um, and one of the the limitations of our study is that we can't we can't actually answer um, like our study doesn't give us actually any information about the why, um, but we certainly had some theories and, and other folks we've talked to about um, about the study have um, have contributed some ideas too. Um, so you know about the you know, why is the number what it is? Um, one thought is, uh, is that the, something is not working the way we folks think it should in, in the judicial system, right? So the, um, uh, kind of in the, the ideal world that, you know, maybe we talk about with law students or that we, we talk about, you know, kind of a, a simplified discussion of how, um, how the court system works, the adversarial system works, right? We have two adversarial parties um, fighting about the same the same dispute. They each do their research. They they find the precedents that are most useful to their sides, plus you know any other 
uh, precedents that are likely to control that they they ought to bring to the court's attention. And they bring, you know, each side brings their universe of cases up to the court. And that universe of cases is going to be, you know, pretty much the whole universe of relevant cases, right? And so if the court goes fishing for its own, um, you know, does its own fishing and its own research, it's going to pull up the same cases that the parties have cited because they're they're adversarial. And so they're, you know, they're they're looking at everything and they're that um, those adversarial positions are, are going to let them bring up the whole universe of cases. Right. So that's kind of one theory about how this is supposed to work. Um, and, you know, what 49 percent stickiness says is that that's not that's not what's happening. Right. And why? So it could be that the briefs are are insufficient. Right. They're not the parties aren't bringing the research that the courts need to make their decisions. Um to the court's attention. Another idea is, is going the other way, that courts are ignoring the parties' briefs. The courts are um, resolving different issues than the ones that the parties have brought to them, um, right? So it could be could be that or, or not. Um, we've thought about the, the different research platforms that folks use. So, um, uh, there are some there are some papers, um, particularly by um, Susan Neville Omar, about the differences in uh, what different research platforms bring back after doing searches for cases. And so, you know, it, her studies have shown that the same search in Lexis and Westlaw will bring up, you know, the top ten relevant results will be different. And so, perhaps some explanation here is just that um, the different the different algorithms and the different search platforms um, are causing some of this difference. Right. And I, I think in addition to that, you know, some folks have suggested that, yeah, there's so many cases that, that say the same thing that perhaps the, the courts and the parties are really talking about the same legal issues, but they just happen to be citing different cases for the proposition. So there might be a thousand cases that all say, the standard of reviews de novo. So it really doesn't matter which one the parties or the court decides to cite for that proposition. And right. I think that might be true, but I, I struggle to believe that that can explain, you know, the huge gap there is between the, the cases that the parties are cited and, you know, the fact that there's so many endogenous case citations in the court's opinions, especially when, you know, one of our findings was that for cases that both of the parties cited in their briefs, only 38% of the time would those cases actually show up in the court's opinion. So even if it was a case that both thought both parties thought it was important enough to mention, there was still a 62% chance the court wasn't even going to bother to mention it. So I think there does have to be some disconnect in what the parties are talking about and what the court's talking about in order to, to explain that gap. I wonder if part of the transmission from the briefs to the courts could be a sort of felt incentive for better or for worse for parties to include like string citations or kind of uh, as many citations as possible on a particular subject where courts don't necessarily feel obliged to sort of cite to every potentially relevant precedent on point. Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely, um, well, I think that very likely explains um, part of the low transmission from the briefs up to the opinions. Parties definitely 
definitely cite many more cases than courts do in their opinions. Um, I can't remember the exact multiple, but it's at least twice, I think, as many. Um, and that makes sense, right, from the the advocate's perspective of wanting to be really thorough with the research, perhaps bringing, um, you know, if you're the appellant, having um, several several issues on which you think you, the underlying decision can be reversed. And, you know, say the court reverses on one, then the court doesn't need to get to the others. Um, and citing, I think parties probably rightly feel that they need to cite more than the courts do because they are they are not a court, right? If you're a court, um, you have a little more latitude about how much you cite and what, um, how long your, how long your proof needs to be, um, right? And we we excluded two two opinions, two published opinions um, that that cited no cases. Uh, so that I think is definitely um, definitely part of the explanation going from the briefs up to the opinions, but. I think that would cut the other way, thinking about the stickiness in opinions, because the more cases the parties cite, the bigger that universe is um, for the court to pull from, right? The court, the court to get uh, citations from, so to put in their own opinions. And so I would think the more cases that a party, the parties brought up to the court, the higher the stickiness would be in um, the judicial opinions. Mm. I wonder if some of the endogeneity could be explained by courts citing non-precedential opinions in order to kind of offer support for novel propositions that a particular certain circuit hasn't directly addressed or considered before, but that another circuit has. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that could be one factor. I think that that helps explains it. And I think for future researchers, you know, having our number and Marvell's number as a baseline will allow us and other folks to look at specific types of citations to see if, you know, citations to, to non-binding authorities are more sticky or less sticky than the average citations. Or even looking at amicus briefs to see if the citations in amicus briefs are more or less sticky than the party's briefs. And, you know, that'll give brief writers a sense of, is it worthwhile for me to include these non-binding authorities or maybe is it worthwhile for me to even file an amicus brief in this case? Mm -hmm. One thing I was wondering as well uh, about some of the more granular data you presented in the study was whether some of the kind of low level variability in stickiness and indigeneity uh, among particular judges might be at least partially a function of the clerks rather than the judges themselves. I mean, maybe. Maybe some of this is just some, you know, different clerks having different practices when it relates to sort of pulling citations or pulling authority from the briefs as opposed to finding authority on their own. Um, I think that definitely could be um, and likely is part of the explanation. The, you know, how, how clerks work is kind of in that black box of judicial decision making. Different, you know, different judges have different um different procedures for their clerks and different cultures in terms of how their clerks are, are to work. And then, of course, individual clerks might make their own decisions. I have heard even some some clerks and, or former clerks say that they purposefully tried to find cases that the parties hadn't cited to include in opinions, um, although for exactly what reason, I don't, I don't know, um, right? So even, I mean, certainly that would affect the stickiness of um, a resulting 
opinion. Um, and I know there are some some folks out there talking to clerks and getting info information from clerks about how they how they research. Um, but that that is not a question we can answer. But I think is um, is probably an explanation for for some of this. And maybe that's part of what the um, you know you asked earlier, and I don't think I answered. You know why has this number stayed stable from Marvell's study forty years ago to our study today? I mean, it just might be you know this is this is what an average is. It's the average of all these different people making their quirky decisions, and it ends up around fifty percent. So, in closing, Alexa and and Kevin, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you see this kind of developing kind of study of stickiness in judicial citations going forward in the future. I mean, I found this study really fascinating and provocative. And, you know, I wonder if you have thoughts about where it ought to go next. Um, well, I'm glad you found it. You found it interesting and, and thought provoking. Um, so I, I have, you know, we both have ideas about where, where it could go or where it should go. Um, the paper has gotten some some um, interest from some of the legal research folks, um, like the the actual research platforms, um, and perhaps it'll be um, it'll be a, a metric that they can calculate. Obviously, you know something like uh, like case text can calculate this much more easily than than we can um, from our you know our computers in our offices at a law school. Um, but I think there's, you know, as Kevin said, this is a baseline and, and now we could get, we or other researchers can get into the particulars of what, what kinds of cases, what categories of cases, you know, are cited in the opinions and try to figure out, you know, all right, are, are the procedural standards, are those really boilerplate by, by court or by chambers? And so what the parties put in their briefs doesn't really matter as long as it's, um, as long as it's correct, um, right? And how about binding or non-binding? There are a lot of a lot of the existing citation studies um, look at you know, binding and non-binding um, citations in opinions, and also there are a ton of studies about secondary sources, right? And so looking and seeing well, what what secondary sources that the parties cited end up in the opinions, which is a different question than the most of the other citation studies answer, which is what what kinds of secondary sources are courts relying on? Um, but most of those studies don't ask where, where they came from. Um, so I think there are a lot of different, different possibilities for um, areas of this to study or more particular factors, particularly about the kinds of authorities to study. Um, I know another direction to go is, um, are there particular characteristics of the attorneys who, um, who are filing these briefs? Right. So even looking at the broad categories of, of government attorneys and private attorneys, um, you know, if you're writing, if you're an agency and you are um, filing briefs, you know, in a very narrow area of law, then perhaps, um, you know, stickiness will be will be higher um, for the, the, those particular kinds of attorneys doing those particular kinds of cases. Um, so we're we're not able to, you know, make any claims about any of that with what we've done so far. Um, but we're hoping that, um, you know, future research will be able to tease apart what that 49% um, number means and produce some 
more um, kind of practical advice for lawyers in particular, but perhaps also for courts um, about about what effective and useful research um, is when you're when you're writing briefs. Excellent. Well, thanks so much to both of you for coming on the program. I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will will pick up the study and and dig a little bit deeper into your findings. Thanks so much, Brian. It was delightful to be with you. Thanks, Brian. session will you please stand first allow me to introduce myself my name is judge hundred years some people call me judge dread now i am from Ethiopia. try hard you rude boys for shooting black people Charge for robbing school children, robbery, aggravation. Good man, I take my sentence. You know, son, I you shoot the man, you know. I just let my body take my face. It just come from try, you know, son. I take my sentence, you know, sir. Oh, shut up, Adam. Adolfo James. You rob school children You boom the people's house You shot black people But you and I don't give you Hush up Just for talking I know charge you for contempt And that is a separate hundred years I heard my sentence you to four hundred years I said hush up, hush up You are sentenced to four hundred years And five hundred lashes I am going to set an example. Good boys, don't cry, don't cry. 
thousand hostages here with Tom. I am not guilty. Hold the turn. Take him away. 